Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Jillian Hayes, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. I have the good fortune of being joined by three exceptional panelists for our discussion on sexually transmitted infections today, Drs. Brian Wirth, Zachary Nelson, and Amy Brotherton. After I introduce them, I think you'll share my level of excitement for all of the knowledge they bring to this important topic, so let's get started. Dr. Brian Wirth received his PharmD from the University of New Mexico before completing a pharmacy practice residency at the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. He then completed an infectious diseases pharmacotherapy fellowship at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, before joining the faculty at the University of Washington School of Pharmacy, where he is now an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy. Brian's main research interest is in antimicrobial pharmacodynamics and resistance. His interdisciplinary translational research program is primarily focused on understanding the mechanisms of cross-resistance among glycopeptides, lipopeptides, and lipoglycopeptides in methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. However, in recent years, he has also established a collaboration with local STI experts like Dr. Lindley Barbie in an effort to bring greater emphasis of PKPD principles to the antimicrobial selection and dosing for Neisseria gonorrhea. Brian, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to talk with everybody today about gonorrhea. Next up is Dr. Zachary Zach Nelson. He's a graduate of the University of Minnesota College of Pharmacy. Since graduating from pharmacy school and residency, Zach led a progressive emergency medicine practice before recently transitioning to Park Nicolet Methodist Hospital, where he practices in the areas of emergency medicine, infectious diseases, and antimicrobial stewardship. Zach is currently an intern at the Minnesota Department of Health, STD, HIV, TB section, and will finish his master's degree in public health this fall. Zach, we're really excited to have you join us today. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of Breakpoints and very excited to be here. Awesome. Rounding out our fabulous panel today is Dr. Amy Brotherton. Dr. Brotherton received her PharmD degree from Mercer University College of Pharmacy. She completed a PGY-1 residency program at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Medical Center, and then went on to Grady Health System in Atlanta, Georgia to complete her PGY-2 training in infectious diseases. She joined Lifespan Health System in Providence, Rhode Island as the first ambulatory care ID pharmacist specialist, where she built an innovative program for HIV and ID pharmacy services. She is dedicated to improving the patient experience, combating stigma associated with HIV and STIs, and decreasing barriers to care. In her role, she developed the first pharmacist-driven rapid antiretroviral therapy program for patients newly diagnosed with HIV, helping to decrease time to ART initiation and viral suppression in Rhode Island. She now serves as the clinical coordinator for ambulatory ID services at Lifespan and holds adjunct faculty positions at Bryant University, Johnson & Wales University, and the University of Rhode Island, and is an assistant professor of medicine at Brown University's Alpert Medical School. She is currently providing oversight as her team rolls out pharmacist-driven rapid prep services at Rhode Island's largest STI clinics. Amy, there were so many awesome things to note in that bio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jillian. And I do have to give a brief shout out to my ID colleague, Dr. Anne-Marie Adusui, who's really taken the lead on expanding pharmacy services in our STI clinic in Rhode Island. I'm so excited to be here with you all today and to nerd out on one of my favorite podcasts. All right. So as you can see, we're in for an absolute treat with this panel of speakers today. We'll be talking about guideline updates for both gonorrhea and chlamydia. Seeing as there was a small global pandemic going around the same time, I wanted to get us all on the same page and briefly review the main guideline changes, starting with gonorrhea. 
the currently recommended regimen for the management of uncomplicated gonococcal infections of the cervix, urethra, rectum, and pharynx is ceftriaxone monotherapy at an increased dose of 500 milligrams or one gram if the patient is greater than 300 pounds. And if, and only if, concomitant chlamydia is not rolled out, doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days has been favored in place of azithromycin. The primary reasons that were provided for these three changes fall into three main categories. The first is PKPD, second, antimicrobial stewardship, and the third, azithromycin susceptibility. We'll start by breaking down PKPD. Brian, can you give us some insight about the decision-making process behind deriving and then subsequently updating doses for these pathogens? I'd love to. Uh, So I'd like to start by just saying that one of the reasons I've been drawn into this space is that historically there's been sort of low uh, or slow uptake of antimicrobial PKPD principles and modeling into the clinical practice of managing patients with Neisseria gonorrhea and other STIs for that matter. I've come to understand this as being partially driven by the culture of STI treatment, which has at least in the past really favored directly observed single doses of antibiotics but it's also because of a lack of good modeling systems due to the fastidious nature of a lot of these organisms, including gonorrhea. So Neisseria gonorrhea is an obligate human pathogen and is highly adapted to its host. And consequently, it's very difficult to culture in vitro and to sustain an infection in an animal host. Uh, There used to be a chimpanzee model for this, but for perhaps obvious reasons, due to ethics and high cost and high demand for these, uh, these models, it's really not available any longer. So now the only animal model we have is a, a female mouse genital tract infection model. So it turns out with sufficient animal inbreeding and exogenous hormone supplementation and or the use of mutant strains of gonorrhea, you can establish and maintain an infection in these model systems. And Andrews's group has done a lot to optimize these murine models. And they seem to offer uh, particularly some value in insights into host pathogen interactions, but they've only been recently uh, used more frequently to try to establish some of these PKPD principles. Frankly, there's no animal model to simulate non-female genital tract infection sites, which makes up, I think, a majority of the Neisseria gonorrhea cases. There have been a couple of recent publications describing the use of specialized media to support liquid culture of Neisseria gonorrhea and the holofiber infection models. And we're working on these systems in my lab as well. And these systems have been used to develop preliminary data for newer agents like Jepotitisin and Zoliflodicin, but it's still pretty early and it's not entirely clear how uh, these insights are going to translate clinically. So um, this is a really exciting area to be involved in PKPD modeling of uh, sexually transmitted bacterial pathogens. So really, when it comes down to updating the doses that we recommend in guidelines, I think we're stuck with clinical observations, surveillance data, and really just our best guesses on basic PKPD principles balanced with simple concerns about toxicity and the acceptability of particular regimens to patients and providers. So that was a pretty long-winded preamble to your question about the big changes in the treatment guidelines, mainly increasing the dose of ceftriaxone to 500 milligrams and dropping the recommendation for azithromycin. So ceftriaxone, even at 250 milligrams, still has pretty excellent activity, especially for urogenital GC. Against strains with an MIC of less than or equal to 0.03, which is the MIC 90 here in the States, it's over 99% effective. There's been some concerns with MICs increasing, especially in Asia, and some signals that cefixime MICs have increased, which has made folks a little bit worried about ceftriaxone cross-resistance. 
listeners of the Breakpoints podcast will have been reminded last time about the broad therapeutic index of ceftriaxone. So with that in mind, these trends alone might be enough to prompt an increase in the dose. There was a 2010 paper by Chisholm and colleagues that suggested that somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 24 hours time above MIC was the correct target for urogenital gonorrhea. And Monte Carlo simulations of this regimen suggested that you could achieve, on average, uh, over 40 hours time above MIC with the 250 milligram dose of ceftriaxone against strains with MICs up to 0.03, which again is the MIC 90. But the lower end of the 95% confidence interval was just under 20 hours, and the current standard is for a treatment to be over 95% effective or curative, with the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval at least 95% effective. And so there's some concern that you won't get uh, 100% of patients above this target. Furthermore, this study was conducted in urogenital sites, and so we know that extragenital sites like the rectum and especially the pharynx are much harder to eradicate. And we don't really know a lot about the pharmacokinetic compartment of the pharynx or the infection compartment of the, the pharynx. But our best guess is that ceftriaxone penetration is probably limited at this site. And we probably need to push the dose to get more drug there. So all of these factors coupled with MIC creep, uh, increased global travel from areas with higher MICs, increasing patient weights, and um, just sort of the general safety of ceftriaxone, the decision to increase the dose to 500, uh, I think makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for that information. It doesn't make sense to have a Breakpoints podcast where we're not saying, I don't really know, talking about murine models, um, and then somehow arriving at an answer. So this sounds pretty on brand for a lot of the discussions that we have on this podcast. So you mentioned, obviously, the PKPD concerns with ceftriaxone, and that's what led to the increased dose. Do you have anything specific from the PKPD angle to add with azithromycin? I think the PKPD angle on the azithromycin recommendation is a little less obvious. I think this recommendation is probably primarily driven by changes in susceptibility patterns for azithromycin, and I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. Thanks, Brian. Now that we've discussed PKPD, I want to, uh, as Brian said, transition directly into the reasoning behind antimicrobial stewardship and then azithromycin susceptibility. In doing so, we'll be able to discuss the updates to the management of chlamydia specifically. So Zach, will you kick us off with the antimicrobial stewardship portion? Of course, I'd be happy to. So obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here to start us off by talking about the importance of antibiotic stewardship, but the use of macrolides continues to result in many downstream effects. And this is especially problematic as macrolides can commonly be used in agriculture as well. A study by Doan and colleagues investigated the effects of biannual mass azithromycin distributions to preschool children for two years in sub-Saharan Africa on the gut resistome, that is a reservoir of antimicrobial resistance genes in the body. Both macrolide and non-macrolide resistance determinants, including beta-lactams, aminoglycosides, and metronidazole, were much more common in the azithromycin arm compared to the placebo arm at 36 months. Certainly the concern here is not only the determinants of resistance in those treated with azithromycin, but also the potential for propagation of those resistance genes to areas and people not treated with azithromycin. While we don't need to control for trachoma here in the United States, we do have many children exposed to macrolides on a regular basis for a variety of indications. And we see that same pattern with regard to the prevalence of macrolide-resistant strep pneumoniae. Communities with frequent macrolide exposure had higher prevalence of macrolide-resistant strep pneumoniae. And in recent years, 
In the United States, the prevalence of pneumococcal isolates carrying multiple macrolide resistance genes, such as ERM-B and MEF, are increasing and are often resistant to other antimicrobial classes as well, including some penicillins and tetracyclines. Amy will be digging into chlamydia here shortly, but it is also important to note that azithromycin resistance has also been detected in other sexually transmitted infections, such as mycoplasma genitalium, an already difficult to treat bug, and sexually transmitted enteric pathogens, such as Shigella and Campylobacter. So clearly the threat of collateral damage from using azithromycin when not needed is significant. Thanks, Zach. Absolutely. I think a lot of our listeners may have just audibly said amen in their car or on the treadmill, wherever they're listening to this episode, when you're talking about collateral damage from unnecessary azithromycin use. So couldn't agree more there. Brian, did you want to add a little bit about half-life of antimicrobials in this vein? Yeah, I can't really walk past an opportunity to talk about uh, antimicrobials with long half-lives. Those of you who know me know that this is a, a bit of a hobby horse of mine. So azithromycin has a very long half-life. And something about a drug that has a really long half-life is that you can optimize a lot of the PKPD, but eventually the drug will be cleared to a certain point that you will have sub-inhibitory or suboptimal concentrations. You'll enter the mutant selection window and the duration of time that you spend in that mutant selection window will be prolonged in accordance with the physiologic half-life. There's even some clinical evidence suggesting that if you dose patients uh, with Clarithromycin versus azithromycin, clarithromycin having a much shorter half-life of about five hours. You can see the persistence of colonization with resistant organisms last for months and months after that. So I think azithromycin has a special propensity to select for resistance. So when you think about giving azithromycin in combination with ceftriaxone for sexually transmitted infections, you're only really double covering your infection for the duration of your ceftriaxone exposure, which we already mentioned before is optimally around 40 hours time above MIC. And then for the next couple of weeks, you have basically diminishing exposure to azithromycin that readily will select for resistance and all sorts of pathogens, which could be part of the driver behind increased resistance in gonorrhea and other STIs. Absolutely. Uh, I'm personally loving that we're only a few minutes into this episode and we've already used the phrase mutant selection window. So that's when you know an episode of Breakpoints is really knocking it out of the park. Thanks for adding that, Brian. So now we'll pivot to sort of the third reason that was provided with the guideline updates, uh, which is going to focus on azithromycin susceptibility. Feels like we're we're piling on for azithromycin right now, but uh, this is the rationale provided for these guideline updates. So, as we mentioned, uh, the the new guidelines replace the one-time dose of azithromycin with doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days. Amy, can you walk us through the data that led to these recommendations? Yes, Jillian. And let me start by wrapping up the gonorrhea discussion by briefly reviewing GISP data and increasing rates of azithromycin resistance, like Brian was mentioning. So most of our listeners will know what GISP stands for, but to clarify, the Gonococcal Isolate Surveillance Project is a national surveillance system established in 1986 to monitor trends in antimicrobial susceptibilities of urethral GC strains in the US. To provide a historical perspective, if we look back at this data from 2009, nearly 75% of gonococcal isolates were susceptible to all tested antibiotics. In 2019, this number was down to 45% of isolates that were susceptible to all drugs. Now, narrowing in on azithro, 
there are certain areas in the United States, including Seattle, where the percent of GCI slits with reduced susceptibility to azithro has steadily increased to over 8%. Nationally, this number has reached 5% in 2019, and this number is likely going to continue to rise. And so this was really the nail in the coffin for dual therapy for gonorrhea, not because these rates are terribly high, or clinolone resistance is much worse, but really because of those important stewardship considerations and collateral damage that Zach mentioned, that we need to preserve the use of azithro and susceptibility for other infections. Now, regarding the update to chlamydia treatment, I think we all released a collective sigh across the IV world in response to this update because azithro was such a convenient option for our patients and for DOT. But at the same time, we knew this was coming, so many other international STI guidelines had already incorporated this revision, specifically for the treatment of rectal chlamydia. So let me walk you through the accumulation of data that led to this change in the US. So the debate regarding azithro versus doxy efficacy for chlamydia began many years back, but one of the first flags for concern came from the results of a 2014 meta-analysis published by Kong and colleagues, evaluating the efficacy of doxy versus azithro for urogenital chlamydia in both men and women. In this meta-analysis, doxy had an excess efficacy of up to 2.6% in all patients and up to 7% in the subgroup of men with symptomatic urethral infection. So not enough to result in any major guideline revisions, but enough to say, hey, we might need some more data on this, and specifically, we should evaluate other sites. As Brian mentioned, infections at extragenital sites can be more difficult to eradicate. So then the same group conducts a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2015, evaluating treatment efficacy in rectal chlamydia based on eight observational studies. And results from this review is really what started to drive change, as efficacy of single doses of through was considerably lower than a week of doxy for treating rectal chlamydia, with about a 20% treatment difference. However, the authors concluded that the available evidence was poor and robust randomized controlled trials were urgently required. So now fast forward to 2021, where we finally have results of two randomized controlled trials, one published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at data from Australia, and one published in CID, looking at data from Seattle and Boston. Both studies, again, demonstrating considerably lower efficacy with azithro compared to doxy, for the treatment of rectal chlamydia in men who have sex with men with up to a 26% difference in efficacy. And furthermore, observational data for rectal chlamydia in women and for oropharyngeal chlamydia have also demonstrated decreased efficacy with azithro. So it was an accumulation of all of this data demonstrating a concern regarding efficacy for azithro for urogenital chlamydia in men, a major concern for azithro efficacy for rectal chlamydia in both men and women, and this additional concern for decreased efficacy in oropharyngeal infection that led to this change in the guidelines. I'll conclude by emphasizing the clinical importance of efficacious treatment of rectal chlamydia in both men and women. For one, we know that receptive anal intercourse provides the most efficient means for HIV transmission in terms of sexual acts. Additionally, we know that concomitant rectal STIs can further increase HIV acquisition. And as we've mentioned, extragenital infections are often asymptomatic. So it's an extremely important to reduce HIV acquisition by treating STIs effectively. Furthermore, concomitant rectal chlamydia in women with urogenital infection is more common than we thought. And infection is not always associated with report of receptive anal intercourse. 
Inadequately treated rectal chlamydia among women can increase risk for transmission and place women at risk for repeat urogenital chlamydia through autoinoculation. And inadequately treated chlamydia in women can lead to numerous consequences that we all know about, including PID and infertility. So Amy, do you think this is a problem with MGen2? Yeah, absolutely. Consequences of inadequately treated MGen is a problem. And then also resistance to azithromycin is a huge problem with MGen as well. So there's a large concern that MGen may become the next sexually transmitted superbug due to its resistance to multiple antimicrobials, including macrolides. Um, macrolide resistance specifically can exceed 50% in many countries. And again, this is thought to be driven by the widespread use of macrolides for STIs and other conditions in the community. Drug-resistant engine was added to the watch list of CDC's antibiotic resistance threats reports in 2019, and this was another area of major change in the recent STI guideline revisions, where now it is recommended to use sequential treatment for engine with seven days of doxy to reduce bacterial load, followed by seven days of moxie, or four days of azithro, if you have proven susceptibility to azithro. And moving forward, treatment of MGen will likely become resistance-guided. However, widespread resistance testing for MGen is not currently readily available. Thanks, y'all, so much for, for that update to the guidelines. And I love that we're getting into the more complex nature, which is going to help us as we sort of move from bench to bedside, from guideline to patient management with these changes. So when we're talking about guidelines changing, treatment changing, how do you guys go about implementing these guideline changes practically at your institutions? So I think what's really important about these guideline changes is understanding why they occurred and the data um, is really nuanced. So first and foremost, in terms of practical implementation, education to those who are providing these STI services is key. And that's something that we're doing on today's podcast, but widespread education is important so that providers are armed with information that they need to make those patient-specific recommendations so that they can make the informed decision of when to use an alternative regimen versus when to really push for a first-line regimen in a patient who may be demonstrating hesitancy. As far as implementation on the system or state level, I would love to hear Zach's perspective um, as an intern at the Minnesota Department of Health. Yeah, I totally agree, Amy. And I think first and foremost, I I have found that giving those providers a forum in which to ask questions about like hypothetical situations, I think what often comes up is this patient that I am concerned about them finishing seven days of doxycycline. What should be my threshold in terms of pulling the trigger on a gram of azithro versus, you know, continuing to to educate them and things like that. So couldn't agree more that education is important and and getting in front of them is great. You know, from the from the public health perspective, I think it's very interesting because, you know, it's it's not the academic medical centers, it's not the large community hospitals that are important for the health department to visit because they typically have resources to ensure implementation of these guideline changes. But smaller hospitals, clinics, especially in rural areas, often do not have these resources. So, for example, I recently went um, with the Department of Health on an outreach visit to a busy family planning clinic about three hours northwest of Minneapolis to do some in-person education. And they serve a large, diverse population up there, and certainly in an area in which perhaps their services are not entirely popular. And so it's difficult for them to, to stay up to date with a lot of these new changes in treatment. And there's their team is comprised of midwives, um, nurses operating under collaborative practice agreements, 
PAs, you know, very few, obviously, ID trained clinicians and, and, and specialists available up there. So what I really took away from that visit was that it's very much a team effort and we have a much bigger picture to consider. I mean, I think we talk a lot about, you know, these resistance trends and things like that, but it's hard for us who are used to treating these patients at the individual level to kind of take a step back and say, how can I make sure that not only this patient knows, but their partners and everybody else who is at risk for these infections? Absolutely. Thank you both for sharing that. I think uh, we're going to touch on partner therapy and, and counseling of patients, which is certainly paramount to our discussion at large. But I think when you take into account the fact that these guideline updates came out in the middle of COVID, there's also supply chain shortages for testing um, with COVID. You know, this has been a systematic issue and certainly uh, solutions are, are ongoing. But I think, as you mentioned, considering and not forgetting about those rural communities where maybe access to healthcare in general is a concern is going to be very key. So kind of staying in that practical and logistical realm, how do we communicate with patients about treatment, especially when the guidelines change? Uh, what strategies have you found effective when discussing guideline updates with both patients and their partners when applicable? I think we have to be comfortable with the fact that a seven-day course of doxy will not fit for everyone. And as there are different levels of risk based on sexual act and side of infection, first and foremost, a good counseling session must start with a good sexual history. And there are many resources available on the CDC website, state websites to guide providers with the best methods to obtain a sexual history, including how to incorporate inclusivity and inclusive terminology into your sexual history and how to engage in open dialogue. So once you master this skill, then you can appropriately assess patient risk and provide patient-specific counseling and recommendations. So for myself, with both HIV and STI treatment, I always try to explain the why. So like how we're trying to explain to providers, also explaining to patients as well. And then I tailor that explanation to an individual specific risk and health literacy level. So for example, if I had a cisgender female who reports receptive vaginal sex with male partners and was hesitant about the seven-day course of doxy, I would then want to discuss the risk of rectal co-infection and would recommend extragenital testing to increase our comfort level if we went with the Zithra. I completely agree with you, Amy, and I think this underscores some of the things you stated earlier about the reasoning and changing from azithro to doxy for chlamydia. With the prevalence of concomitant rectal chlamydia in the absence of reported anal intercourse still being significant. So, uh, you know, the sexual history is really an important skill that I think is either perhaps not well taught or it's just avoided due to embarrassment on either the part of the provider or the patient. But either way, I think we're missing a lot of good information. And these are complex, I always tell my residents this, but these are complex issues and complex topics that we're trying to explain to the patients. And so, for example, in the ED, I created dot phrases for educating patients in patient-friendly language using CDC education to guide all pharmacists through this education process so that they felt comfortable doing so and then completed all the important parts of the education. Additionally, many health departments offer educational materials on their websites, both for patients and their partners. For example, if they're diagnosed well in the ED, I typically will send them home with these patient-friendly short educational resources because there's a good chance that immediately after hearing their diagnosis, they aren't necessarily listening to any education that's being provided. Oftentimes, they're in shock or trying to connect some dots. And I can't underscore the importance of that patient-friendly language because I get questions like, 
when I'm informing somebody of a positive gonorrhea test result, does this mean I have HIV? So it's really important to understand who you're talking to and, and the level, the words that we're using, because I think we get used to talking to each other in our jargon and it's easy to not get out of that provider to provider mode. And um, the, that's going to go right over the patient's head if we're not intentional about what we're saying to them. Thanks, Zach. I love the idea of a dot phrase. We use dot, dot phrases so much for so many things at our institution, but I think that's a great way to really provide consistent, patient-friendly education across the system level. So that's a great idea. Absolutely. I think leveraging our technology and tools like you mentioned, like a dot phrase where you're able to create text uh, to ensure consistency, especially with a skill like adequate sexual histories that's maybe not taught as consistently as, as uh, we would like it to be. And I also really love what you said about allowing the patient some time to process their diagnosis and making sure that they have educational materials for the time where they're, you know, maybe in a better place to be thinking through the the logistics of the infection rather than how did I get this, what's going on, et cetera. I think that's really important and something that we can definitely miss um, as clinicians. So uh, we can't talk about effective counseling of patients without also mentioning uh, counseling and treatment, again, when applicable of partners. So Zach, I'll put you on the spot here. I know you have some experience with expedited partner therapy or EPT. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that is, what that looks like to actually provide that to um, patients and their partners, things you've learned, all that good stuff? Of course. Um, so for those of you that don't have much experience with EPT, it is a harm reduction strategy uh, that involves treating sexual partners of persons diagnosed with certain STIs without a formal medical evaluation who are unable to or unlikely to seek timely treatment. The legality of EPT is often something that comes up. Um, it is permissible in 46 states, so the vast majority of us can and should be implementing EPT as we are able to. The four states in which the practices around EPT are a little murkier are South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Alabama. So if you're in one of those four states discussing with your local or state departments of health or and reviewing your state statutes are beneficial before implementing anything. But I wanna emphasize again that EPT is a harm reduction strategy. I think some folks, even in public health, can forget this. We know EPT is not ideal. Of course, we want the partners of our patients to get a medical evaluation, be screened for other sexually transmitted infections and their complications, and get the most effective treatment regimen for their situation. But in reality, I've had difficulty convincing even patients with STIs who have not been treated to come back for evaluation and treatment, let alone their partners, whom they may not even know more than their first name. So I wanted to quick go through a few high-level pearls that will be useful in practice. First, you will get questions about the legality of EPT, whether it be from a provider or a pharmacy. Having prescribed lots of EPT through a collaborative practice agreement, I have had many pharmacies tell me things like, none of this is legal, or that sounds like something the state would audit me on. So having your state's EPT rules saved somewhere will likely be beneficial as many states will allow anonymous prescriptions with made up names and birthdays for the purposes of EPT. Next, the benefits of EPT, which primarily include reducing rates of reinfection and or persistent infection among index patients or patients who are first diagnosed with the STI, have been primarily studied in heterosexual people. So there is much less literature surrounding the effectiveness of EPT in men who have sex with men and pregnant women. The CDC, even in the last set of guidelines, does not explicitly answer the question of how to handle EPT in, this sub, in these subpopulations. 
Again, EPT is not ideal, and we know that, especially in the case of gonorrhea. But I do think some of the messaging regarding resistance and suffixime, which is what is recommended in place of ceftriaxone in the case of EPT for gonorrhea, is somewhat misleading. You know, based on some of the surveillance in the United States and uh, elevated MICs to suffixime, it makes sense why the CDC abandoned suffixime as a preferred regimen in the 2010 guidelines. However, I think clinicians are generally under the impression that this means that suffixime is almost useless, which is, of course, not true. And I think this ultimately discourages people using it as EPT. Surveillance of the gonorrhea samples in the United States demonstrated that the percentage of isolates with elevated suffixime MICs increased from 0.1% in 2006 to 1.4% in 2010, which prompted the change and is now back down to 0.3% as of 2019. So all of this said, we must keep in mind, as we always preach in ID, that we should know our local resistance rates as we're able to, as we may need to adjust our practices accordingly. And then lastly, the topic of, will my patient's partner finish their doxycycline if, if I prescribe it to them for EPT seems to be one that always comes up. And there are folks who strongly believe that with EPT, we will be lucky if the partner is able to take the one dose. So using azithromycin for chlamydia, EPT is perfectly fine, while others believe it is worth trying the seven days of doxycycline. I don't have a great answer to this conundrum, and it's something I struggle with often, but I do think we can learn a lot about our patients, their situation, and their partners by discussing the importance of treatment and making shared decisions from there. Thanks, Zach. Those pearls were, you know, extremely useful. I don't have a lot of experience with EPT in Rhode Island. Um, EPT is allowable in Rhode Island. However, we don't have a CPA around prescribing. So that's really awesome to hear that you guys have that. Um, I think one of the biggest barriers to implementing EPT is the fact that even among states that allow it, the rules or the statutes around prescribing may differ. So we don't have a centralized approach to doing this. So whether that's who can prescribe, so some states allow a pharmacist to do this, or you might have a CPA, or how to prescribe. Some states don't allow you to dispense without a prescription in the patient's name, even though we have evidence to demonstrate that providing patients with packaged oral medication rather than a prescription is the preferred dispensing approach due to multiple obstacles that can exist at the pharmacy level, as Zach mentioned. So I don't have much additional advice on how to implement, seeing as how there can be different nuances depending upon where you practice. But my one piece of advice would be, even for those in states where this is technically considered allowable, to advocate for legislation in your state that would improve and open access to the service. So I'm envisioning what we need is similar to the website stateofhepc.org. I'm not sure if anyone on this call or anyone listening in remembers this website, but it's a website that details Medicaid access to hepatitis C treatment. And each state was given a letter grade based on degree of access. So we use this in Rhode Island to advocate for increased access to hepatitis C treatments. And I think something similar would be really helpful for EPT to drive legislation and to provide transparency around current legislations. That's awesome, Amy. And we can actually link to that website in our show notes. Um, so listeners, if you want to take a look and see uh, where your state is being graded, definitely link that for listeners. During COVID, I mean, so we, we're talking about expedited partner therapy and not really like having the patient in front of you. But, you know, during COVID, we had a lot more restrictions on actually seeing people in person. And I know that our clinics here 
were, you know, using Cefixime a lot more often because you couldn't get somebody in to get an IM shot. Were you guys doing anything like that? And when you use Cefixime for EPT, are you just doing a single dose or are you, is anyone given multiple days of these, these drugs? So I, I feel like this is the thing that really gets me from a PKPD standpoint is that we're, we're trying to optimize these drugs with one arm tied behind our back. And it just like, doesn't really make any sense to give time dependent drugs as a single dose. Yeah, you raise a great point, but we were doing the exact same thing of giving Cefixime 800 for those that couldn't be seen during COVID. And then even if we have situations that arise where a patient can't be seen currently, <laughs> we still do the same thing. Yeah, and I maybe it's because I, I could have just missed it, but I don't think, you know, we had done a ton of Cefixime in the meantime. I think there was some mechanism in which we could still get patients uh, through that were COVID friendly, whether it be, you know, like a dedicated part of the infusion center or a designated part of the ED where they, you know, they can just come in and get their shot and they're the only person in that consult room or wherever it might be that we were still able to get them the preferred regimen. So I haven't seen a ton of suffixing used outside of EPT. And even in EPT, I think obviously we prefer them to get the IM ceftriaxone. So there's a heavy emphasis on you really need to come in and be tested. And I think some people do that with, with education, but in those situations in which that isn't the case, certainly suffixing, we have used suffixing in that case. And Brian, I know, I've, I think I've seen um, a couple of, was it 400 Q12 for three doses or something like that? Yeah. And I, I feel like uh, once we, you know, we've, we've gotten to this point now where we've sort of slowly decided like, okay, now we're going to do doxycycline for a week. It's like, okay, well now we're not doing a single dose of azithromycin. So we've, we've kind of broken that seal there. And, and so now I'm just sort of wondering when does it happen for everything else? When, when do we get the okay sort of culturally in the clinics to be like, okay, you know what, you can take a drug twice a day for three days or something, right? Instead of a single dose uh, one time in the clinic. Yeah, and it does make you wonder how that would impact, well, especially with, you know, the, the concern about the suffixime, number of suffixime MICs that were above the, the cutoff and now back down, what would be the impact longitudinally if we were to actually give them a treatment course as opposed to a, a single dose. Yeah. And I mean, even pushing the dose, I mean, if you think about your, your, from a PKPD standpoint, if you're doubling the dose of a drug that has approximately, you know, linear pharmacokinetics, you're going to increase your time above MIC by one half-life, which for Cephic seems a couple hours, right? So you're, you're not really moving the ball by doubling the dose all that much when you presumably need, if, you know, ceftriaxone is any indicator closer to uh, a full day time above MIC. I don't know. This doesn't, this part, this part, I, I think uh, this is a, my, my surreptitious goal in entering this space is to try to bring more traditional ID concepts into the mainstream in the STI space. Cause I, I think we, I think we can get patients to take normal courses of antibiotics for these infections. Before we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to give the group one more opportunity to impart uh, wisdom to our listeners. So what do you think every ID clinician should know or remember while treating uh, patients who are presenting with sexually transmitted infections? 
I think this has been brought up a few times by both uh, Zach and Amy. So I'll just go ahead and beat this dead horse because I, I think it's really important um, to take a good sexual history. If you don't screen people appropriately and recognize these extragenital sites, um, it, it's really potentially problematic. As we've mentioned, extragenital sites are, are not only difficult to eradicate and to treat, but they're oftentimes asymptomatic. And if you're not being thorough in your evaluation and screening for these sites, they can have persistent infection at these sites and potentially have uh, a reservoir for relapse um, later on. The two things I'd like to share with clinicians are first, clarifying drug allergies. So clarifying allergies is extremely important. Um, if you're lucky enough to have a pharmacist, they can help you with this. So at our clinic, we're frequently consulted to determine appropriateness of ceftriaxone based on a previous allergy to a beta-lactam. And I would say 99% of the time after clarifying with the patient or through chart review, we find that the patient has received ceftriaxone or a beta-lactam with a similar side chain in the past, allowing us to proceed with first-line therapy. My second piece of advice is welcome to my PrEP soapbox. So don't forget to talk about HIV PrEP. HIV PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis can drastically reduce the risk of HIV acquisition, and yet less than 25% of patients who could benefit from PrEP are using it. The amount of times that patients have come in newly diagnosed with HIV who were either never offered PrEP, were unable to access PrEP, or even felt shame in asking for PrEP demonstrates that we have a systemic problem and we can all do our part to educate and increase access to this incredible prevention service. So I think the only thing I'll add to those other very good things is being able to provide patients education that they can understand and that is not judgmental in nature. Um, so despite being common, sexually transmitted infections still carry a lot of shame and stigma. And in most cases, they are easily diagnosed and treated. And so it is important for us to make sure that the patients know what they need to know in a way that they can understand and in a way that doesn't make them feel shame. Absolutely. I think those are some great uh, last words of wisdom, adequate sexual history. Amy, you're free to get on a prep soapbox anytime on breakpoints. We are pro that soapbox here um, and meeting them where they are with education that means something to them that they can understand and providing that in a, a shame-free way. Those are some great points um, to wrap up our discussion today. So thank you all for sharing those. So last, but certainly not least, we will pivot to our I Feel Nerdy segment. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's edition, I would love to know if you could cure one STI. I'm taking HIV off the table because I think that that's the correct answer to this question. So one STI other than HIV for the whole earth, it would never be seen again. Which infection would you cure and why? Sure, Jillian. So I can start. Um, so I actually posed this question to my ID pharmacist colleagues, and I was surprised to find that we all had the same answer, which was HSV or the virus that causes herpes. So I'll share with you my personal rationale. So I think first I'd have to select from those that are not curable because these infections can cause lifelong morbidity and patients experience the most unnecessary stigma. So this includes our viral STIs. So of course, HIV, hepatitis B, HPV, and HSV. And then from there, I would narrow down to those that aren't vaccine preventable. So that leaves us with HIV and HSV. And since I cannot choose the correct answer, which is HIV, I would go with HSV. 
And then I also must add that I think we can all remember the agony of memorizing all the different doses of acyclovir versus valacyclovir versus famcyclovir for treatment versus suppression in pharmacy school and then again for our boards. So yet another good reason to do away with this one. Yeah, Amy, I, I really like your approach and I think I followed the same sort of rigorous uh, assessment that you did focusing on curability and, and vaccine preventability. So I think, I think that HSV is, is the correct answer here as well, but in the spirit of being nerdy and thinking outside of the box here a little bit, I'm going to stretch the definition of sexually transmitted infection a little bit to perhaps include tuberculosis, which I think could be acquired during a sexual encounter. So uh, with that in mind, uh, tuberculosis continues to be, I think, the most deadly infectious disease on the planet. And uh, if we could make that go away, I think that would be a good thing. I would also uh, tend to agree with Amy's systematic selection of of HSV, but just to be different, I think I'll go with uh, syphilis. Uh, so syphilis is the great imitator, is incredibly easy to go unnoticed as the symptoms can be similar to a large number of other diseases, is not on the radar of many clinicians, especially some of the more uh, rare manifestations like otic or ocular syphilis. And I feel like it should be and, and can be a cause of a number of quality of life destroying conditions, along with some devastating complications in pregnancy. I'm a little bit ashamed to say that gonorrhea was my gut instinct answer. Amy, the way you laid that out, I was like, man, I've missed the boat. Um, so I guess I'll stick with my gut instinct answer, but goodness, y'all made some strong cases. So if the, the four of us each get one selection, I guess we've eradicated four between the group, um, which is, is a good start. So all of that said, I can't thank the three of you enough for joining me today um, and sharing your experience and your wisdom um, for treating patients uh, who present with sexually transmitted infections. Thank you so much, Jillian, for having us. I definitely feel ner nerdy after giving that systematic approach, um, but it, it was really wonderful being able to discuss this with you all, and thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the invitation, and it was great to have this talk with you guys. Thanks, Jillian, and thanks SIDP and Brian and Amy for uh, helping me, as always, learn a bunch while listening to Breakpoints. Looking forward to the next episode. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Jillian Hayes, and our featured speakers have been Brian Wirth, Zach Nelson, and Amy Brotherton. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Rachel Britt. It was edited by Kelly Hannon and peer-reviewed by Emily Kirkpatrick, Lisa Vaezi, and Joe Carino. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafont. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.